Well, kia ora koutou katoa, everyone, and welcome to a very special version of For Hoon. Kaka. Uh, the kaka. Oh, very this good. This is the kaka hoon, yeah. Kaka. The kaka in the kaka. Uh, mm. This is um, me in my um, uh, Honda Insight uh, hybrid. Very exciting car. In oh, I thought it was a jazz hybrid, Bernard. Oh, that would have been quite good. I could have played the jazzy music in my mm, jazz. That's true. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yep, yep. In the car car. No, so um, unusual background here. If I could blur out the background, I would. Um, I'm with my iPhone here. But Peter, your background is even more exciting. Tell us about. Well, it's bucolic. Were. It's bucolic. I'm in uh, I'm in London, uh, where I where I where I um, sometimes live, and uh, where I I haven't been for two and a half years. But um, so, yeah, so I've. <laughs> At the moment, I'm not in Hoon Bay, um, uh, you know, indulging indulging in the uh, all the delights of Hoon Bay and Joe Voice Road. I'm in Belsize Park in London, um, indulging in whatever very, the delights are of here. It looks very spring-like there. How does it, it, is how very does it feel being in, yep. being in London? I, I'm it's very quiet. I think I'm the only... As well. I did. I think I'm the only person in the whole of England wearing a mask um, still on the tube. Um yeah, it did. I did stop in LA and I think, you know, as usual, Bernard, if I, you know, I can spend, you know, an hour and a half in somewhere and then write a sort of 600 word uh, analysis of what, of, of, of what, what's happening. Um, my main analysis from LA, LA is that um, we're never going to get to net zero and because there's far too much uh, fossil fuel being consumed by everybody at every moment. Yeah, you know, no, it, it was funny being in the US because I haven't, I, I lived there until about five years ago and then uh, I haven't been back for four years, I suppose, or three or four years. And I was struck by something that always used to strike me when I went there, you know, any time over the last 20 years, or thought, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more than 20 years old myself, but uh, is the um, sense of consumption and the scale of the economy. Yeah. It is just, you know, it is just, this, you know, you just get that sense of an enormous pumping, thrusting economy, and uh, it's still doing it. So, you know, hopefully when we get onto your, um, economic analysis of the globe and stagflation. We can discuss, uh, you know, the state of the United States economy based on my uh, two days in Venice Beach in California, which I, I don't see as a bad analysis, really. Yeah. Um, well, it's a sad time if you, if you really believe that we can change the climate trajectory. Um, this week, for example, in India, they've had the worst heat waves uh, in their history in parts of India up north. They're getting regular days where they have 50 degrees Celsius or more. It's so hot and they're so short of coal that they're massively increasing their coal production so they can fire up their electricity plants so they can run their air conditioners to deal yeah. with the heat. Mm, for those, for those who can, for the few people who can afford air conditioning. That's right. Yeah. So it's um. It's no, a I tough saw that. It's, it, it, it just looked there. a bit bleak. That aspect was a bit bleak. And uh, um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm just. I think we maybe maybe need to do maybe maybe we should devote a small section perhaps next week to to um, climate change because um, you know it is I, I don't know I just have a sense that uh, all of those goals Glasgow uh, Paris are slipping away yeah particularly with the Ukraine war which has created yes. so much political pain around the prices and uh, this week in the in the United States, I know that everything's been dominated by the Supreme Court um, leak showing that the uh, now conservative dominated court is 
looking to overturn Roe v. Wade. But in behind all that, um, Joe Biden has pretty much given up on his big climate agenda. Yeah, well, he's, he's trying to frack, frack himself out of this problem. And the, U, the UK, I mean, we've just had record profits from BP and Shell in the UK. Um, and the UK is taking another look, really, at how to ex- increase gas and oil production from the North Sea. Mm-hmm. You know, fair and yeah. understandable in these circumstances. Um, but it is, you know, you and I've talked about this before, Bernard, but it is, and it's true, particularly true of the bond market. But uh, if you consider Ukraine to be a kind of political, a political um, rather than, a, than an economic fundamental action, it is always remarkable the way real events ultimately dictate the shape of economies and, and economics. And you can't get much more real than a, than a war in Ukraine. Yeah, what was that phrase from um, the British Prime Minister just after the Suez Crisis? Um, events, dear you know, boy. What, events, dear boy. Events. Yeah. Um, mm. There's been plenty of plenty of those. Um, I'm just going to uh, race through um, the events here at home before yeah. we jump overseas, because uh, it's been a for a monetary and fiscal policy geek like me, uh, it's it's really been monetary and fiscal policy palooza week. Mm. So much happening. Palooza. Starting. Jesus Starting Christ, with, where did that come from? Oh, no, it's, I mean, you've got to put Palooza on the end of something. It's a bit like yeah, Watergate, yeah, okay. you know. Yeah, all right. Uh, so, so Monday, we had the Infrastructure Commission come out and say that to really deal with our infrastructure deficit and get ready for climate change and population growth and improve our water quality, we needed to spend $30 billion a year mm-hmm. uh, investing. And currently, we're only spending maybe 10 to 15. So essentially, we need to double the amount from around about 4 or 5% of GDP to about 10% of GDP every year on infrastructure. And uh, to do that, um, you'd have to put up taxes, you'd have to borrow a lot of money, and uh, you'd also have to you know, employ an awful lot more um, people digging things up and mm. nailing things where, down. Where are they going to come from, Bernard? Where are the people, where are the well, diggers going to come from? Yeah, and that's that's the basic problem. So Monday, the Infrastructure Commission says, this is how much we need to spend. And then on Tuesday, uh, Grant Robertson came out and said, no, nah, we can't spend that much. And by the way, if we tried to spend it today, we just push up inflation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, Grant Robertson said uh, on Tuesday that the budget coming up on May the 19th, it will not have an increased capital spending program frozen at the level from December to try and avoid pushing more inflationary pressure into construction and building materials costs. Uh, However, um, he did uh, bring in a new debt target, the thing I've been hammering on about for years, uh, which is about 30 percentage points higher than the previous Mm -hmm. debt target. And that will give some government, maybe not his, but some government um, another 10 to 20 percentage points of latitude with the Crown's balance sheet to uh, essentially use debt to borrow pay for big infrastructure now and then and then smear the cost on future generations out 10 20 30 100 years into the future but yeah, at the be moment, yeah yeah but at the moment because of the inflation problem he's not able to to touch it which is um, sort of depressing and at the same time sniping in from the sides you've had the opposition with Nicola Willis and Christopher Luxon accusing the government of being addicted to spending, 
and how the six yeah, billion that, dollar is that true? Is that true, actually, Bernard? Because I noticed that this week that you put out quite a good little tweet, a very compact tweet, pointing out that that New Zealand government spending was not, in fact, totally out of line with where it needs to be. You know, you 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 That's, you know you you more or less explained that in fact it wasn't totally outrageous. Yeah, within so the bounds, when you it was within look, the bounds of good sense, right? Yeah. So when you look at what the government is spending right now and what's happening with the budget deficit right now, the budget deficit is falling falling very mm. fast. Mm. In fact, we got numbers out on Thursday showing that the government's deficit was four billion dollars lower, i.e. better. Mm. than it forecasts in December. And actually, when you look at the fiscal stimulus uh, that the government's putting into the economy, so the extra money compared with a year ago that it's pumping mm. into um, the economy, you will see that, um, the and, and actually Adrian Orr pointed this out this week as well, the government's actually sucking money out of the economy. It's mm. it's actually contracting. It's Bernard, but Bernard, that's because that's because the impact of COVID has been less than forecast, presumably, right? Rather than that, the economy is tickety boo. Yeah, well, just to use partly, a technical term there, tickety boo. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Partly because we've got so many people in in work. That mm. was the other good news we had this week. That unemployment is down at three point two percent. And uh, because of some wage growth and because people are working longer hours and there are more people in the economy working, we've actually got the national salary bill going up at a rate of 10.8% per year. And every week, salary and wage earners in New Zealand are getting $2.6 billion coming into their account. Uh, Mm -hmm. The tax system is so good. That um, that just goes straight into the government's accounts as uh, uh, as taxes, and of course we're still spending it. And when you've got nominal GDP growing so fast, the tax system is really geared up to um, suck in even more of yeah. that, even more of that. So the, the great thing drag. is that the economy's growing nominally very strongly, and that's fantastic for the the government's uh, books. So. <laughs> Of course, it looks like the government's spending a lot of money, and it certainly did in 2020 and 21. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's actually contracting fiscal policy. Um, it's hard to uh, uh, hard to um, see uh, that from a general political point of view, but certainly from an economic point of view, that's what the government's doing. And I I tried to point that out and. Uh, um, got some pushback for it from a few people, but uh, it's interesting uh, that it's, it does this work, but it probably works for. Um, I, I was just about to. Dara was just commenting on the fact that you have your safety belt on, and perhaps <laughs> we should. Perhaps we should always do it from the car. We could do a kind of James right. Corden, James Corden um, karaoke karaoke cab thing. Oh, um, excellent! What a yeah, great idea! Yeah. I think we, I think we and should you know, do that. With, you know, with, he usually does that on the back of a trailer. You really? Know, well, well, I thought so. I sort of I sort of hoped so because otherwise, you know, no, nobody can gesture that much and sing while still driving consciously. I mean, even me. But um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, it, but that message from National about about Labour spending still still seems to sink in. I mean, is is the New Zealand media being effective about this? Do, 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 does the rest of the New Zealand media understand, Bernard, what you understand about the numbers at least? Yeah, it's, and if it's not, why really not? T- it's really tough. So on Tuesday morning, I went to a news conference where Grant Robertson talked about his new fiscal rules. And I was there and I put a few questions in and so did a few others who understand it. Thomas Coughlin, 
uh, and uh, also um, uh, Jason from Newstalk ZB. But a lot of the TV reporters... Teenage Scribblers, you mean. Teenage Scribblers, is no, teenage Scribblers, as Norman Lamont once called well, them actually, in England. They're, they're, less like, they're less likely to be Scribblers and, and more likely to be um, television reporters. I don't want to be you know, dismissive of the TV no. reporters. They've got a tough job getting across these big, complicated stories in 90 seconds to people who are just sat down with their dinner. Um, it's not easy, but you can see how they framed their questions and the debate very much from how the opposition had framed Yes, exactly, it. So, exactly. And it becomes it becomes this weird game of uh, patter tennis. Yeah, so the questions uh, went like, um, so Grant, are you addicted to spending, just like National says? Yeah, now, exactly. Now, that's, that's exactly what you well, do. Well, thank you for asking me that, Gary. No, I'm not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you can see why journalists ask a question like that. You've had uh, one side say something and you're sort of, you've gone about to go to the other side and say, hey, those guys said that. What do you reckon? Mm -hmm. And um, sort of fair enough. But the guts of it is that nationals credibility when it accuses the government of being fiscally reckless depends on it having some relation to the truth. That's right. And also, and also, and the opposition. But, as, but it also depends on has has something relate you know to the perception. I was rather than padded tennis. I was just thinking of one of those things that we all used to have in our back gardens with a little curl curl on the top on the top of a stick with a tennis ball. And it is about going thwack 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 thwack. You know, pole tennis That's exactly. Right. Sarah says. Swing ball. You must have <clears throat> yeah. you must have played swing ball in your absolutely. Um, in I your did. List. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Badly. Yeah. <laughs> So you're right, there is a game of swing ball going, going back and forth, and it's hard to cut through. Um, and I don't really expect that the New Zealand public are going to be able to start talking about fiscal impulses and about um, the real... Yeah, but these absolute, these absolute levels of spending are pretty important because, you know, you, know, you, you, you just sort of harp on that kind of labour is, labor is bad for the... is, you know, is, is, is spending hungry. Um, and it hasn't actually been that case in New Zealand. No, Partly because I mean, of those constraints a, around them, as you said, as you've said, all, yeah, you know, all the I mean, way along. The, in the long run, the, the debt limits and and also the the bureaucracy, frankly, which is um, also very focused on controlling government spending. Uh, but there was plenty of spending in 2020 and 2021, and most of it was on the uh, COVID response money that went straight to businesses, the wage subsidies and the resurgence payments which, uh, as we know, eventually cycled through the company's mm. accounts once they'd gotten through the crisis of COVID and the spending bounced back faster than everyone expected. It went straight in the bank account. And that was confirmed again this week in the financial stability report, where you can see a $20 billion increase in the cash bank accounts of businesses across the economy through 20 and 2021 as that COVID money went in and stayed there. And it's interesting, the Auditor General um, uh, came out this week and is obviously wanting to follow up on this and wants Treasury to do a lot more aggressive reporting and uh, digging into what happened to that money. And I think mm. we'll hear a lot more about that because only about uh, just under a billion of the 20 billion has been given back by companies. And the IRD is now forensically going through all the company's accounts because they oh, get will the, they go to will, will they go to Fulton Hogan and uh, Briscoe's yes and maybe even NZME mm -hmm. uh, who are looking to pay some dividends uh, with 
effectively the money they got from the government from the um, wage subsidies and resurgence <laughs> payments. But of course, National and ACT didn't oppose those payments. So when National and ACT say the government is addicted to throwing cash around, well, National and ACT were just as addicted because they um, egged on the government to spray that cash around in 2020 and 2021. It may have actually been the right thing to do at the time. Well, it, seemed, but, it certainly seemed um, like the right thing to do at the time. And re relative to what happened in many other countries, it, it was also done in a relatively measured and intelligent way, it seems. That's right. And, and the other thing that's, I think, really um, interesting that came out this week around COVID, which I calculated from the World Health Organization numbers that came out last night on the level of excess don't, don't forget, deaths. Don't forget, don't, don't forget what our colleague at Reuters used to say, Bernard, reporter plus calculator equals correction. That's right. No, I, I, I as an editor, I used to throw that one around myself. <laughs> a bit. Um, no, I did some careful calculations on this one. Uh, and essentially, um, what we've learned from the World Health Organization is that the excess deaths from COVID globally uh, was around 15 million through 2020 and 2021. Uh, and that is about three times more than the official death tolls that everyone's reported. Mm, mm. Um, India is the place where the biggest um, gap is between the excess deaths and the official toll. Uh, and um, the interesting thing there, I, th I think, and uh, you'll be able to tell us from London how it feels there, that the excess death toll in Britain was substantial. And if New Zealand had had the same excess death toll as Britain, there would be 36,300 more New Zealanders dead mm. right now than there was. So when in fact, they're all those, all of those, all of those people are alive and digging up the streets in Wellington to, you know, to fix up the fix up the water supply. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think in all the kerfuffle around COVID and what's happening with inflation now and the political situation, the current government can and and they'll try, but unfortunately, it's not going to resonate anymore. Mm. Uh, but that is a real achievement. 33,600 people mm. not dead because of what the government did. The trouble is the public have moved on. Um, <laughs> inflation is now the main concern. And uh, what we've seen is the, uh, the success of 2020 and early 2021 is just washed out of the system. And we've got two more polls this week showing that National is ahead. So there's a Roy mm. Morgan poll showing they're about seven or eight points ahead of Labour and also a read research poll for the first time showing national above 40% and Labour around 33, 34. So at the moment, if this was translated into <laughs> seats in Parliament, Te Māori Party would have the balance of power. As All right, well, well should, as... we, should we address that? Because I was really struck, Bernard, that I think it was David Seymour yet again who brought up this question of whether the, whether, whether the Māori Party, to Party Māori would have uh, the balance of power. And can I just ask, what's, what's, actually, what's wrong with that? Why is that well, such a bad um, idea? It's not such a bad thing. In fact, uh, back in the 2008, 11 and 14 elections, they did have the balance of power as well. And, uh, yeah. and they used it to form government with, with national. And the, the good thing about um, to Party Māori uh, being in that position of, of kingmaker, I suppose, it, is, is that... Unlike the Green Party, which always rules out working with National, mm. Te Party Māori, even though it, is, it said at the last election it wouldn't work with National, it would prefer to go with Labour, there's always that... They're much more um, opportunistic in a sense, aren't they? 
and exactly. I don't mean that in a bad way. They're much more sort of maybe maybe there's there's much more situational ethics rather than 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 a political understanding. It's a very it's much more situational, I think. Yeah, and they've created the more leverage for themselves because um, there is this doubt in the mind of both sides. You know, will they? Mm. Won't they go with us? That was the power that Winston Peters created with his whole, um, you know, uh, I'm not going to rule out working with anyone. You do give yourself some leverage. That's the problem for the Greens and for Green voters is that their vote effectively will always be a Labour vote, um, mm. but with a with a green a green field. And arguably, they haven't been terribly effective. No, um, I mean, they certainly not in this. They, certainly not in this round. You know, certainly not no. in this in this parliament. No, I mean, they, they would argue that um, they got the um, zero carbon bill through. Uh, however, Labour was always committed to that, as was New, um, mm. New Zealand First, everyone forgets. And uh, I, I don't think the Greens made that much difference with that. James Shaw, if he was in the car with me, would, would um, argue, no doubt. Yeah, he'd be on a, he'd be on a, he'd be on his bike, leaning in leaning in the window with the, you know swearing at you for, yeah. for, for yeah, yeah. cutting he'd, him he'd off at saying, the last bike lane. Yeah, come across my electric car. Um, mm. But um, I know he would say, as climate change minister, he's made some difference behind the scenes. And mm. you know, when you when, when you're in government, you tend to think that because you're the ones making the decisions, that you actually, that having that power is useful, and you've actually done something good with it. Well, when you look at the climate policy so far, four years yeah. in, supposedly a climate emergency, the only thing that the government's really got to show for it is a million tonnes of coal now being burnt every mm. every year in Huntley, which wasn't the case a few years ago, and a higher level of emissions. And the only reason it isn't much, much higher is because of COVID. And the other um, thing which for me has been really disappointing if you care about climate change action is that the only, uh, uh, the government has taken no political risks with any policies to try and reduce carbon emissions. We might see some of those risks come up in the next few weeks when they release their emissions reduction plan and also in the budget where there's gonna be some measures. But one thing that struck me again this week from Grant Robertson speaking about the budget is that he's saying already that the government has no plans to use the Crown's balance sheet to try and reduce carbon emissions. Mm. I.e., mm. all of the measures, all the spending is going to be fiscally neutral in that it's going to be coming from the um, emissions um, uh, trading scheme and not from, you know, a higher tax. Actual, not from actual, tax. not from actual measures, as it were. Yeah, and so um, anyway, I, I would argue that the Greens will argue a good a good case for themselves but actually net net um they haven't really moved the dial and one of the reasons for that is they don't have the lev don't have the leverage to um get anything out of labor um in those negotiations whereas the party maori might and the opportunities mm. party interestingly in the polls this week oh really lift up from one and a half to two percent or so do we um, do we need to get do we need to get raf on again then we definitely need to get raf on um and uh, certainly, I think if they can be clever and get themselves a seat or an alliance with someone with a seat um, and they continue to rise and they have the potential to exercise some influence as well, because they're not locked into one side. Yeah. Or the Bernard, the main thing I'm concerned about at the moment is that our audience is doing all the jokes this week rather than me, buggers. <laughs> You know, dead well, dead people don't realise they're the ones who are otherwise going. You know, it's just extraordinary. The zombie, the zombie vote. People are crazy. Christ, these people are. You know, who do they think they are? You know. No, well, this is fantastic. Um, the paying subscribers to the Kaka are wonderful because I'd like to thank them 
for mm. the support um, they give uh, to me and, and to you prospectively when I'll buy you a beer later on. <laughs> or gin. Yeah, when I'm your um, sidekick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but um, but also the paying subscribers are doing the jokes and all the work. It's great. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, Bernard, I noticed Mark Dalder had quite a good piece in the in newsroom this week. I mean, we you know he's a fan of we're a fan of his a, a lot. Um, where he was saying that the government has really decided to give up on COVID. And he had some quite interesting kind of statistics there. And, and if we argue, as, as you just did, in the sense that the COVID argument has kind of gone in the sense that the government can't really use that for political or the Labour Party can't use that for political gain in the in the upcoming elections. Where, where do we stand with COVID in New Zealand at the moment? I mean, the, the, the you know, we talked about the, the, the achievement of, in, in a sense, of having... Um, having lower actual actual deaths, you know, um, where, where do things stand right now with, with COVID in New Zealand? Because the numbers aren't great. No, I mean, now that um, the government has essentially moved to orange all over and removed the uh, limits on uh, indoors and outdoors um, seating, on outdoors events, and um, the only real restriction now for most people is having to wear masks in certain places. And it's very mm. uncertain about whether you do or you don't. I've had four or five public events in various places where in one place, this was a reasonably closed off room. There were 50 people uh, with no masks. Yeah. And then in another city- <clears throat> Was it the National time, Caucus? Well, in this case, it was actually a, a business um, function mm. where Grant Robertson was speaking. And the irony is that we had a room that was probably uh, 80 square meters with about um, 50 people in it, no masks, and the finance minister talking to them. Uh, the back of the room were all the journalists, all wearing masks, who then mm. went up to do a news conference in front of Grant Robertson, all wearing masks. It was the most weird thing. And it's a, mm. it's a bit like Wellington, where everyone wears their masks outdoors while it's yeah. blowing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is, yep. and then they go into the yeah. cafe, sit down, and everyone takes their mask off. Mm, mm. Um, it's sort of weird. Uh, but essentially, the government has, I mean, given up is probably too strong a word because we've still got 20 deaths a day. There's still three or 400 people in hospital. Um, the health system is, you know, really exhausted in all sorts of ways. Um, there's reports out this week that um, uh, emergency department staff and, and nurses are mm. so tired. They've given up reporting being abused by um, uh, by uh, patients by, by national party by national party members in the media. <laughs> the media, that's right. Uh, mm. So um, you know, it has sort of receded into the distance politically and as a sort of a main focus of the government. But of course, they're still getting eighteen thousand cases a day. I mean, there was mm. a time when the entire nation would stop for a news conference when we had a rumor that one person. Gone, gone positive. It's amazing. That's right. That's right. Ten thousand cases today. Nah. You know, let's talk about something else. It's yeah. It's, no, it is. It is a. You know, there'll be there'll be great um, degrees written about this and, and papers written about this. But it, it is very interesting the way that this has gone. The way a kind of not not only has the as as we've discussed many times the uh, the the disease has changed, but also the sense of public exhaustion. And the, the sort of the way that the way that a sense of public exhaustion cannot be ignored uh, is That's very right. interesting. And people and the politicians can feel it. They know when um, 
when the public have had enough. Um, and actually, the moment it struck me, uh, uh, I don't know if you all remember, but um, this would have been towards the end of last year, October, November, the Prime Minister gave one of these um, amazing Facebook Live, Instagram Live feeds from her home late at mm. night, mm. where after she's, in theory, yeah. put the kids to bed and had dinner and kid really one i think true despite the rumors despite the rumors uh, i think there's only one and she's read through a pile of papers then she talks to the public with her phone literally for five Mm. or ten minutes answering questions from people uh, on her instagram or facebook feeds and october november late at night i happened to be watching with lynn actually and there was the stream of abuse yes, in her absolutely. feeds, absolutely. which should have been turned off, but it wasn't. And um, well, she, she should have been doing it on the car code if you wanted, if you really wanted to oh. reach the New Zealand intelligentsia. I think we should invite her exactly. on, exactly. Particularly we'll if you ask can do the it on next week. Yeah, mm. um, she can have the passenger seat. Exactly. Um, oh, I think she'll be. I think we know that she'll be in the driving seat. For... Yeah, yeah. No, I think I'd be the sidekick then. Or, yeah. Well, maybe you and I would be sidekicks. And, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd be in the back seat, you know, going, "Are we there yeah. yet?" <laughs> so, so um, anyway, stream of abuse, including someone who said, um, "I'm completely over this. Stop this whole stuff. We just want to move on with our lives." And surprisingly, the prime minister actually addressed it. And she, she often she sees the streams going up, and she picks mm-hmm. out comments and questions and tries to answer them. And usually, they're quite constructive or the ones she chooses are constructive but just one moment when she was i think quite tired obviously late at night fair enough um she she essentially picked out the the (laughs) comment from someone who said you know i'm I'm over this we've got to stop all this it's it's over and and she said well i'm sorry karen or whatever her name was you know i'm sorry you're over it well i'm over it too and i think there was a moment towards the end of last year november december when essentially the public said this is crazy. We just got to get on with our lives. Mm. And actually, I think the real sort of, if you're looking for a, a story, which sort of um, turned the, turned the dial, it was <laughs> that you, re- you remember that thing where Chris Hipkins came out and said, people in Auckland may have, to, yeah, may have to apply for a slot to get out of Auckland mm, for the, mm. for the summer, summer period. It was like, let's win the lottery to leave our city. And um, it lasted for about three or four hours. But in that moment, everyone went, "Uh, you just jumped the shark there, mate. We we Mm. can't carry on Mm. with this. And so ever since then, I think the government's been in backpedaling mode. And one of the reasons I think they're in such trouble is that the Prime Minister herself decided uh, probably the last week of November, the first week of December of last year, that New Zealand needed a good summer. And the best way to ensure it was to keep the border closed through the summer. And yes. that, that really hurt a bunch of people who couldn't come back for a third summer in a, or a third, second summer in a row. Mm-hmm. And um, it, at the moment, um, I think there's a good chance that National wins the election next year if this transition keeps going on, um, which isn't good. So we've, we've gone through the fiscal and the monetary policy stuff. Uh, oh, the Reserve Let, Bank let's came just, out. St- Stephen, that, Stephen wrote, just, just, just before you go on, Bernard, Sure. Um, Steve, Stephen raised an interesting question about, you know, which we've again talked about before a little bit because we're so on top of the pulse of New Zealand. Um, the health reforms. Is that going to happen? You know, I just, again, I, I find Andrew Little extraordinary in this, in this area where he, he sort of seems to act like a bureaucrat rather than a politician. 
and kind of isn't really visible about what's really going on in the health sector, but just harps on about the um, the restructuring of it. And yet, I'm, I'm not convinced that the restructuring is actually going to happen, particularly given the proximity to the election. Yeah, I think it's got a life of its own now. It's a bit like one of these juggernauts. Once you start it, it's very hard to stop. <clears throat> and also, National have said that they wouldn't do the restructuring of the DHBs. But um, there's no love for the DHBs amongst the public. Uh, uh, they're seen as um, out of touch. Uh, there's such inconsistency in the service quality up and down the country. It really is a postcode lottery about whether you can get your hip replaced or whether or not your cancer treatment takes six weeks instead of six months. Um, it, uh, I don't think politically there is the great... Um, love for the DHBs that National can capitalise on. We have a lightning rod at the moment is around cost of living and inflation and National really is able to push that button day in day out with you know cost of living crisis, squeeze middle and that's where they're getting their traction. Uh, the DHB stuff I think it's going to rumble on through the rest of this year into next year Mm -hmm. And one of the sort of interesting news items this week was um, Andrew Little saying that uh, he's launched a task force to um, try to improve the um, waiting times for surgeries. No doubt it's blown out as it has everywhere in the world because of COVID. Um, it's a fairly classic political move, you know, launch a task force. If you've got mm -hmm. trouble, you can at least kick it down the road for a bit. And that may well be come, you know, middle of next year. I'd, I don't think it's the restructuring of the DHBs themselves that will cause political pain. It will be the ongoing delays or the worsening delays in uh, you know, surgeries, wait times. And also, you know, frankly, <coughs> we're going to have higher death rates from things like cancer and heart disease mm, and all of that mm. sort of stuff. Bernard, um, I'm interested to know, just tell me, so to, I want, I'd like to segue a little bit. So go to, from immigration to inflation internationally. So immigration, oh, we, what about, um, you know, New Zealand, if, if New Zealand's got such a low employment rate, you've got very little that I've seen so far emerging from Chris Farfoy about a revised, about a revised immigration um, policy. What's, what's happening with that? Because, you know, just, it always struck me um, in New Zealand, the extent to which a lot of marginal jobs are done by people on those short-term visas. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that in the last six weeks or so, um, the government and MB and the officials have started uh, approving work visas at a massive rate. So in the last three or four weeks, we've had mm -hmm. announcements of three or four extra, three or four thousand extra visas uh, for dairy farm workers, mm -hmm. um, meat um, processing plants, so so meat plants, uh, and also the horticultural sector. Meat um, you, mean with you mean the works? Freezing works, that's freezing the word works. I'm looking for. I, I had one of those um, brain freezes where you it's forget right. I don't the think we, have, I don't think we call them that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Westfield um, isn't there. So, Westfield isn't there and, and Mocow isn't there. Yeah. Canal. Yeah. So, so um, lots of these visas being issued. There were 30,000 issued in March, the, the highest ever number by MB. <laughs> and what I sense and what I'm hearing from um, CEOs behind the scenes and some of the um, industry bodies is that up until about a month or two ago, the government was saying, talk to the hand, we're not going to give you the visas, go away. But now that the borders are open, and now that inflation is the main problem, and all of the surveys show that uh, um, companies are really struggling to get staff for all sorts of reasons, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and you know what? Uh, the migrants coming in suppressing the wage growth actually helps the inflation story. Absolutely. Well, also just getting, so, getting stuff done. Yeah. And I think over the next six to 12 months, we're going to see a surge in the number of uh, temporary work visas mm-hmm. issued and people coming in. Uh, obviously, from, from this week, um, people coming in from visa waiver com- uh, countries were allowed to come in. We still don't have access for people from uh, India and China because uh, they aren't part of the visa waiver um, process. But um, it will come, and certainly mm. from Europe, with all the backpackers from Australia, with a bunch of people um, jumping over here, often they're... Um, you mean the 501s? Well, that's one way to improve the workforce. Um, uh, yeah, mm. and so that's... Um, so-called, that's- so-called because of the genes that they wear, apparently. Now, Bernard, I'm a bit worried about on the inflation, on the inflation side. Now... We've, we talked about inflation maybe a year ago, and you were uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a dove about inflation, and it's actually gone rather hawkish. Well, everyone else, has, everyone else has gone hawkish, and yes, yeah. the Federal Reserve hiked um, its official cash rate 50 basis points this week, and looks like it's going to do um, two more of these 50 hikes over the next couple of months. So it's going to be 150 basis points of tightening in 90 days. That's the fastest monetary mm. policy tightening since uh, Volcker in uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Yep, which, squeezed in, which succeeded in squeezing inflation out then. Yeah, but also created 10% plus unemployment in mm. the United States. And, um, and you would have seen in uh, uh, London yesterday, your time, uh, overnight our time, that the Bank of England mm. hiked its official cash rate by 25 basis points to 1%. But at the same time, forecast both a recession later this year Mm. and inflation of over 10%, so double-digit inflation in Britain. And um, have you have you been around any of the supermarkets or seen any of the prices yet? Because you, you will have been away for 10 years. You'll go back and you'll suddenly see what happened to the prices. Yeah, yeah. No, well, and also availability. I mean, I haven't. I, I yeah. did go and buy some preserved lemons yesterday for my latest Ottolenghi recipe, and that was, you know, as long as they had preserved lemons in the local deli, I was fine. But you know, I'm in North <laughs> London, so you know, yes, everywhere's yes. got harissa and preserved lemons and um, zatar. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I haven't yeah, bought any gin lately. Places. Yeah, yeah. There's inflation in various places, and the Fed is. Um, uh, the Fed is uh, acting, but um, I'm not the only one who's saying that the Fed is about to over-tighten and make a mistake, and they're doing it just as inflation's coming off the peak. Um, we've got a slowing economy in Europe. Uh, Germany is technically close to recession already. Mm. Um, the United States, there's a bunch of banks now forecasting recession next year. Um, things are slowing down very quickly because of these higher interest rates. And uh, so I'm still a dove. I'm in camp. I'm in the. So you think you think there's going to be a sharp, just a sharp press on the brakes, and then and then it'll all come off again. Yeah, and um, the car will go skidding off and and hit the buffers, whereas. Um, a oh, excuse me. Breaks. That's another word that only you're going to use: bulwark, beleaguered, and buffers soon. <laughs> which are, you know, three words that only journalists use. Buffers. Uh, yeah, maybe the crash barriers. Yeah, yeah, because the buffers are those things at the end of at the end of the railway line, you know, where oh, they yeah. where they yeah, that's what a buffer is. Now, okay. um, no, very good. Thinking editor. of the R word of recession, you've been, I think this is you've been right? you've been an editor, you've been my editor at various at various places. Thank God, everybody needs a bonus. Yeah, this is this is another good one. You've got you've given me a better word. 
Excellent, excellent. But Bernard, you know, I think the, the other R word that we could mention in this is, apart from recession, is Russia. And in a yeah. sense, this is a Russian, a Russian-led recession. And uh, Vladimir Putin will be rubbing his hands at the idea of a recession overseas because he knows that that is going to make the anger and the concern about Russia's activities in Ukraine and what it's done to gas prices and oil prices and so on much higher. You know, the, the public is going to is going to get exhausted by supporting Ukraine as well. I think that's right. And um, you saw it this week with uh, Hungary and Slovakia effectively holding up um, the European Union's plan to wean itself off Russian oil before the end of the year. And mm. the Germans are still not really on Is that your indicators on there, Bernard, that I can hear? Have uh, you got your indicators I'm, on or your window wipers? No, no, like no. I'm, 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 this lady's not for turning, no. <laughs> I, th I, thought I, could hear, I thought I could hear a sort of thwap, 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 thwap going on in no, your car. Um, no. But yeah, no, it, it is a very interesting problem. And I, you know, just, just to talk a little bit about Ukraine, have you got Robert Pittman, Patman in the, in the passenger seat there from Otago? No, unfortunately not this week. Yeah. So, you know, it is extremely interesting to see what's happening with, um, uh, you know, the, Rus the Russian onslaught, as it were, into, the, into eastern Ukraine. And it looks to me as though they're going to kind, kind of level Mariupol to turn it into a sort of um, 2022 version of Grozny. Yeah, it's just awful stories coming out of there. Only 100 people got evacuated and um, essentially the other 200 are under, under there in part because um, everything's collapsed on top of them and they're going to have mm. to be dug, is that right? Mm. Mm. No, it's a, really, it's a really shocking thing. And it, it, it is the, the uh, I mean, I, I read some quite upsetting things this week of, of a description of a Russian soldier describing to his mother on the, on a, on the phone the methods of torture that he was using and being taught to use by the FSB in the field. Mm. And I can't, I don't actually want to even describe what they were, but it was absolutely horrific. And I just, the, the, this kind of um, wasteland that is, that is the Russian policy. You know, we have seen this in Syria with Aleppo and we've seen it in, in Chechnya during the first Chechen, Chechen war. Um, it's this kind of standoff and use artillery but what's also interesting to me is, is um, in Mariupol, you've, you've had um, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya, going in with his shock, Chechen shock troops to clean out, as it were, uh, Mariupol. And it, it is a real um, laying, waste of, laying waste of that part of the country. But th then there's also been this week the attacks on the various railway junctions and power stations and so on in the west of um Ukraine, which has huge implications for the for the military aid that's being sent in. Yeah, it raises the risks that you know an accidental missile strikes a NATO truck or something, and um, that's painful. But the other thing I found interesting is these various reports of explosions and fires at various plants and factories uh, in Russia. In Russia, yeah. Um, and uh, reports that um, American intelligence is being used by the Ukrainians to strike things inside the Russian borders. And the other thing I'm curious about what you're seeing over there is how much the main nine uh, end of World War II uh, commemoration um, parades mm. in Moscow are driving Putin's willingness to you know go for broke in the next week or two yeah well i i think maybe we should consider a um, a may the 10th podcast ourselves because you know new zealand was I, I think there will be something diabolical over the over the next three days that uh, will allow him to claim some kind of 
uh, victory. I mean, there is a, there is a there is a suggestion that he might declare actually a, a, declare it a war rather than a special military operation on May the 9th, which would allow him to have a um, which would allow him to have a a, a mass uh, mobilization of troops. Um, but again, actually, you know, we we talked maybe a little bit about this last week, and I did something about it in my um, spinoff thing. It's very interesting. The Americans noted this week that China has not stepped in in any way. It would appear to support um, support Russia. And I think, as, you, as you're pointing out, Bernard, the U.S. intelligence. I mean, we forget on if you remember going back to February the 24th when all this started. In those previous ten days or so, the United States and NATO were leaking or releasing the most extraordinary level of detail about Russian planning. And so there's the you know the the eyes in the sky, the apparent human intelligence that uh, that the West has, um, you know, on and in Russia is seems remarkable. And I'm sure there's some um, some fairly extraordinary investigations going on at the moment to try and find where that human intelligence is coming from. Yeah, um, what's also interesting to me in the last couple of weeks is <laughs> that um, the Russian uh, advances in the east seem to have stalled. Mm. And that everyone seems to be talking now about a long sort of war of attrition, uh, which where NATO and the West pour more and more weapons in for the Ukrainians to use. And um, the other interesting factoid that I learned this week uh, from a great um, podcast interview with Ukraine's uh, ambassador to the US was that there's a million Ukrainian expats who have gone mm. back to Ukraine to fight. Mm. A million. This is to offset the four million or so who've left um, yeah. Ukraine. So there's no shortage of bodies, motivated bodies on the ground to mm. you know, point these missiles at the Russians. And unlike in, in Vietnam or Afghanistan, where the West, or at least the United States, uh, could have some doubts about the, um, the willingness of their proxies to really go for it. You know, the South Vietnamese, they were always fighting a civil war. Mm. Afghanistan, you could argue, was a, a different type of civil war where the two sides were funding each other's side. But in Ukraine, you've got a sovereign nation filled with tens of millions of people who desperately want to kick out the invading army. Yeah. And there's no risk for NATO or the US, uh, particularly if they don't get their own people in there, that they're wasting their time or the, their money. Well, I think the, diff the difficulty, Bernard, I think is, is, is this economic question that if, you know, when the, pain, when the pain starts becoming global and international, it's going to be very difficult. But what's happening in New Zealand about this? Because I, I, I think I may have mentioned last week, I interviewed Bill Browder, the, um, who's oh, wow. uh, you know, the, the creator of the Magnitsky Act, uh, which I think are, are evident in 34 countries. And he was complaining that New Zealand hadn't done it at all, which is one of the reasons I interviewed him for my upcoming North and South um, column, my next North and South column, just to put a little plug in there. Um, what's happening? Is there any discussion in New Zealand about the Hercules? What, you know, where is the Hercules? What's happened to those intelligence people that New Zealand sent to Brussels? You know, what is New Zealand doing about Ukraine? Anything? Is it even discussed? No, apart from the announcement, um, I think three weeks ago that they were going, um, there's been very little uh, news or detail about what our, tr our troops and our um, pilots and various things are doing there. And interestingly, after the initial noise three or four weeks ago about how we were going to have our own Magnitsky Act type thing, the Naira Mahusha was pulled back from it. Uh, the, 
uh, the um, the bureaucrats in MFAT have never been fan of the Mag mm. Magnitsky style um, act, in part mm. because once you have it, um, everyone presses you to use it against China. <laughs> mm. And and um, MFAT, that's one of the last things they want is um, a whole bunch. Well, that's of that's a very interesting question because I, I noticed Mr. Anderson has just put up the. Um, Bill Brown's book, um, Freezing Order, which I which I just finished actually, and, and I do recommend it's excellent. And, and you realise the cor the courage, you know, whatever kind of person he might be as a um, as a as a very wealthy businessman in his own right, who was a big investor in Russia, the courage that he's shown in going after Putin and going after the Russians, and this is pretty extraordinary. But um, yeah, it's a very it's a very very interesting. Uh, question and he he reckons or, or wonders whether whether it is about China that New Zealand doesn't have a Magnitsky Act and of course what I brought what I raised with him is the Panama Papers reference the the leaker of the Panama Papers pointed out that New Zealand and, and in fact named John Key um, pointed out that New Zealand was really lagging in the whole question of you know controlling trusts and uh, controlling dodgy money and in fact had become a bit of an epicenter of dodgy money. Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. You were involved in managing the reporting effort um, for the Panama Papers. A little bit, yes, yeah. a little bit, yeah. And, um, and, and I, I think that some of that has gone away. There's been some reforms which have made it more difficult, and certainly the government is no fan of all of this stuff. Um, but I don't think that's the reason we haven't done the Magnitsky thing. I think it's much more about China. To give mm. you an idea of how sensitive it still is, so this week... Um, the uh, Chris Farfoy, the migration minister, has come under all sorts of pressure to effectively stop the extradition of a New Zealand resident who was accused by China of uh, murdering a young woman in Shanghai yeah. 13 years ago. Well, that, that was a fairly extraordinary Supreme Court decision, I thought. Yeah, I mean, the Supreme Court says, yeah, we trust the Chinese, it's all fine, don't worry, they can go. Yeah. And of course, everyone's going, whoa, this is China of the torturing and the capital mm. punishment stuff. Um, and it's interesting that just in the last few days, uh, Chris Farfoy, as reported this morning in the Dominion Post, uh, has effectively said to the lawyers for um, this, uh, this guy who lived in New Zealand, and has been in jail, by the way, for five years, waiting mm. for mm. Um, this to roll through the courts has found out that uh, Chris Parfoy is interested in um, hearing about his health problems. Unfortunately, this guy is suicidal, uh, has um, a small brain tumour and also has liver problems. So sounds like... Well, that may be very convenient in the sense to be, to, well, to be able yeah. to overrule this, what the it's, Supreme Court has done. It's, it's just another... Um, it's another example of how, how tortured we make ourselves about our relationship with China. And... How I think actually that reluctance to be critical of China or mm. to you know worry about the effects of it is starting to ebb away. So um, obviously um, New Zealand's joined up with various Five Eyes statements criticising China at various places. But one of the other reasons this is a very interesting case, in which I think we'll hear more of it, is that New Zealand, Australia, Canada and the UK don't have extradition agreements with China for this very mm. reason. They don't want to send people back to get their heads chopped off or more likely shot and the, and the bill for the bullets sent to their families. Mm. Um, because uh, essentially the, the, the fiction, the Western, you know, uh, Westminster legal system countries say mm. is <laughs> we don't have extradition. You'll have to fight it through our courts. 
Mm. And of course, none of them had got to the point where our high court got to, which was to say, we can trust the Chinese. It was the Supreme Court, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Supreme Court, yeah. No, yeah. It's, a, it's a remarkable judgment. And, the, Bernard, and we, should, we should probably talk about another court judgment briefly since we're getting to the top of the hour and everybody said, sure. when we push this back for it by an hour, push this forward by an hour, or sorry, back, um, people said that they wanted to watch the six o'clock news. Um, uh, the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade. Now, I, I wrote quite a lot about that in my uh, spin-off thing this week. The, the couple of things about that, which, which somebody who's, who may in fact be on this, on this call um, mentioned is, it is pretty settled that Roe versus Wade is not the most brilliant piece of, um, leg- piece of um, law on which to base um, the right to abortion because it was based on, pri- and even um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was, was, you know, c- questioned the, the sort of uh, in the strength of the Roe versus Wade versus argument. Wade because it was based on privacy and the, the privacy between a, between a woman and her doctor uh, rather than the absolute right to abortion. But I, what interests me about this and why I think it is a creeping phenomenon, which New Zealand can't ignore, is that this is really part of a, part of a right-wing assault on all sorts of rights. It isn't, it isn't just about abortion. Thanks, Julian. Yeah, no, um, uh, I think this is part of a pretty broad effort, a reactionary effort by, you know, um, conservative figures all around the world to try to pull back. And the success they've had, despite their electoral weakness, mm, mm. has been extraordinary. I mean... Um, no, they've been, they've been extraordinary. You know, and, and, you know, we've got to remember the Koch brothers are doing this. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really remarkable, stealthy, intelligent bit of politicking that they've done for you know, 20, 20, 15, 15 years or so. You know, this is this is all about legislation. It's about having draft legislation. It's about putting it into the mind of pe- minds of people that there is concern. And I, and I think we, we need to be aware of this. And also what I think is happening is there's a reaction to the reaction. So um, <clears throat> uh, the, the conservative um, reaction to what happened in the, the 60s and 70s with the Civil Rights Act and various social changes, there's been a reaction from the Conservatives. And I think now a lot of people who had been sort of turned off by politics because it was, you know, there wasn't really anything at stake, they'd gotten what they needed Mm. anyway from social movements and from court cases, suddenly working out that actually they do need to be politically engaged, otherwise they're going to lose some rights. No, it's a really, that's a very positive um, way to see it, Bernard, because this is the first time, you know, there's a a podcast that I listen to a lot, the Preet Bharara one, um, Stay Tuned with Preet, which is a um, legal podcast, and one of his his colleagues was pointing out this is the first time that the Supreme Court has, well, may may remove a right that has been hard-won rather than enhance it. And, you know, the, you just think of all the things that have been gained over the last 15 years, whether it's gay marriage or uh, some of the civil rights legislation, including, again, including in New Zealand, can these things be taken away, edged away, you know, gradually edged away by, by people who want a kind of an imagined 1950s nirvana? Yeah, well, one of the advantages we've got is because of the MMP system, um, we don't have so much of a problem with gerrymandering that the Americans have. Mm. And luckily, because we don't have an interventionist um, high court, um, we still have control of our parliament, I suppose. Um, that's been good. But, um, you know, it's a matter of time before a really um, 
effective reactionary force wins that balance of power. Mm. So a Winston Peters style character. Um, I always think New Zealand now is vulnerable to a young Winston who knows how to tweet and TikTok and Facebook his way into power. We haven't God, got Simeon Brown. Yet. Simeon Brown, what a hideous idea. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Um, so, you know, that's, um, uh, that's a risk for New Zealand, just as everywhere else in the world. You know, um, there was a fantastic piece in The Atlantic from a couple of weeks ago, which I'll, I'll, um, I'll put into my weekend um, note, which talks about how the growth of social media, particularly from the early 2010s onwards, has effectively made the public space of the democratic West stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> and has and has undermined the quality of the public debate and the effectiveness of democracy incredibly without anyone really thinking about it or knowing mm. about it and um one of the responses has got to be you know we need to somehow uh clean up these wild wests of social media um yeah, well, it's also that, yeah, it's just it's just also that you need wedge issues to really succeed with this. You need some wedge issues, whether it's abortion. And I have a feeling that uh, National and others, and David Seymour, are uh, quite effectively using the co-governance, the this sort of idea yeah. of grumpy the grumpy Pakeha, uh group. You know, I think there's a wedge issue being built there quite effectively. Yeah, and it'll and, be done um, under the guise of of freedom of speech as well. Yeah, and it will. Um, Unfortunately, it will play out in the October local government elections and mm. then flow through the next year because the government's continuing on with um, uh, with three waters. Hey, we're at one minute to six. I just yeah. So, Bernard, I was going to I was going to say to you, Bernard, that, that we should we should wind up so that people can go and get their um, you know get their gins and go and watch watch uh, watch the news. Um, I used. I tried to use the word "hoon" in Wordle this week. Oh no, it wasn't Wordle. It was in the New York Times spelling bee, and it wouldn't allow me to use "hoon." And I was deeply Hoon. concerned. I've, I've written nice. to the written to the New York Times about that. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it is an official that the plural of the bird, the kaka, is a hmm. hoon. It's a hoon of kaka. Yeah. Do you have any skateboarding dogs? I don't have a skateboarding dog particularly today. No. Um, I'm just trying to um, uh, think of one. Uh, piece of news that has really uh, tickled my fancy um, uh, this week. Um, and mostly it's about a um, pod of dolphins that turned up in Wellington Harbour and um, uh, gave us all a real uh, thrill. It's not so much a sort of a jokey thing, it's just a happy, happy thing. And I'll try and keep um, putting those into the choruses. Yeah, but, but um, were, were they actually Russian dolphins sent, sent in to intercept the Cook Island Ferry ah! or something? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. They, they anti, did have the anti- little knobby things on the top. You that's know, right. Exactly. With the little aerials. That was that's it. That's right. That, yeah. Flipper. <laughs> the Russians. Or Flipski. Hey, Flipski yeah. is this, as it was. Yeah. <laughs> Flipski. Hey, Peter, it's wonderful to see you in um, Likewise, London. And uh, thank you very much to all of those who've jumped on the Hoon again today. It's wonderful to see you all. We'll be back again next week at five o'clock um, New Zealand time sometime in the morning London. Thanks very much, <laughs> uh, to talk about Bye-bye, the week's events. Thank you very much, Peter. Cheers. See you. Ka kite everyone. Bye-bye.